Hey guys, this is Anders listening in from Santa Cruz, California, where I'm currently sitting on my couch. (laughs) I woke up early to go surf up north and got skunk, so I'm back pretty early just hanging out. Listened to the podcast on the way up and down, Kyle, sounding super good. What I do is work for an international nonprofit. We're actually the nonprofit of the year here in Santa Cruz, California. Um, What we do is rainwater catchment systems. So we catch rainwater, store it, filter it on site at schools in Nepal, Vietnam, and Puerto Rico. I go out to Vietnam on November, when is it, 10th or 11th, to build some more systems. We have about 7,000 children drinking from our systems. It's a super rad nonprofit, um, all volunteer-based at this point, too. So all the money is going straight to the kids and the systems. Um, If you'd like to hear more about it, go to gravitywater.org, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for sending that in, Anders. If any of you want to send me a little bit of audio, you can do that by using the Voice Memos app on your phone. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from. Try and keep it under a minute, and you can email it to info at kyle.surf. Shout out to Anthony. I was down in LA the other day and I posted an Instagram photo of me doing something and uh, this guy named Anthony responded and he's like, hey man, I'm right down the street from you. You want to go grab a beer? Uh, I listen to your podcast. So I'm like, hell yeah. And uh, Anthony and I went out and had a beer together. He's a spear fisherman and super cool dude. Um, It's a nice thing about podcasting is basically everyone I've met who listens to this podcast is cool. Um, I love when those serendipitous events happen. Anywho, this conversation is with Hunter Motts. I'm going to keep this quick. Hunter is the author of The Straight A Conspiracy. He is the co-host of Mixed Mental Arts with Brian Callen. He's been on Rogan. He's been on Tangentially Speaking. He's all over the place, and he's one of the smartest guys I know. So give it up for Hunter Motts. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Czechoslovakia and other countries that no longer exist. Uh, when are we going to go surfing next, man? Uh, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, yeah. I mean, I would love to go surfing as soon as possible, but I uh, I am getting married in a couple of weeks, so very exciting. That does that does throw a wrinkle in the schedule. Yes, it does. You don't want to show up on the altar with a huge wetsuit tan. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> all, of, all, of your, all of your wedding photos uh, have a huge wetsuit tan. In every one of my school photos growing up, I look like I'm two different people from the neck up and the neck down, especially in, in uh, wintertime. Uh-huh. Because in wintertime, you're, in Santa Cruz, you're never really outside, so you get pasty. You, you get you get very pale in the winter, but you're always surfing. So you're from the neck up. It's four shades darker. So let me ask you this: Is that a marker of social status within the surfer community? Do surfers <laughs> see that and know what that means and be like, "Oh, you're one of us"? <laughs> a little bit, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Uh, 
N- not everywhere, obviously. In Hawaii, they have this beautiful golden brown hue <laughs> across their entire bodies. But in Santa Cruz, you get the neck tan and you even get wrist tans sometimes. Oh, wow. Yeah, where your your hands look like they have gloves. You have, yeah. you have gloves because you get so dark. So, yeah, it could be a marker of social status for all your wedding photos. Well, and that's the thing is, is that I, I surfer is always a tribe that I've wanted to belong to. So I would actually be quite excited to have that. And everyone else would think I would look like an idiot, but I would know that for that period I was in the tribe and that would be really exciting to me. Yeah. The fun thing about, uh, doing this podcast and talking to so many different kinds of people is it's forcing me to describe what the surfer tribe is in new ways. Grow. It's like growing up. It's like the two fish swimming. What Mm -hmm. the hell is water? Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never had to think about what the surfer tribe is and why it's different. But then when I talk to people, I'm like, yeah, we spend most of our days trying to arrange our schedule around the tides. I guess not many people do that. No, I don't think most people can even tell you when the tides are or what how many or how, how many there, work. how yeah, many yeah, there yeah, exactly. are in the day. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, for I think for most people, tide is a laundry detergent. Um, (laughs) at least in america um but yeah i mean that's that's the human experience you are you it is the two fish you're you spend your time swimming in a culture you're not even aware of it and then it's only through the encounter with other cultures that you come to be aware that other people think differently they interpret symbols in different ways they have different markers of status and belonging Um, They have different values and yeah, they have different compasses and North stars of what they're arranging their lives around. Right. And you told me uh, once the first time I took you surfing, you were, uh, you knew how oblivious you were. Mm -hmm. So you said, okay, let me know when I'm doing something wrong because Mm -hmm. this is not my environment. And you said, it's a marker of, uh, so it's it's a marker of of success to have awareness of your environment. Is oh, that yeah. what you said? Yeah, I mean, situ- situational awareness is something that is very hard to achieve. So if you think about us, and I mean, Joe Henrik in The Secret of Our Success writes very well about this in terms of e- European explorers. So you have these European explorers in you know the 1800s. They think they're very very smart. And then they go to all these environments like the Arctic, the Amazon, and the desert and proceed to die in large numbers because they have no situational awareness. They don't know how to get food. They don't know how to survive. They don't know how to read the signs and the symbols. And the story, of course, that they told back home in Europe is, oh, these environments are so tough. No human can survive here. But of course, we know that there were lots and lots of tribes that were surviving there because their cultures had evolved situational awareness. So they knew how to read the signs of how the environment is changing. They knew what was edible, how to find food sources. And so in the lost city of Z, there's this, um, you know, the, the explorers of the Amazon talk all about the Amazon being a counterfeit paradise because it's so looks so lush and verdant, but there's nothing to eat there as far as Europeans are concerned because they don't have situational awareness. It is, in fact, a paradise for the Yanomamo or the countless other tribes that live there. Right. And that uh, brings us into how important mentorship is because that person can bring you situational awareness much more quickly. That's right. And, and, the, and when you're entering into somebody else's environment, I mean, the reason why I did that is because you should humble yourself. You should, you should mark, you are the senpai, I know shit, 
What's senpai? Senpai is uh, the master or the elder in Japanese culture. So you are the expert here. You know this environment. I know shit. I am humbling myself below you. Please guide me. Um, and by explicitly defining those roles, you then set up the uh, emotional bandwidth to be able to transmit information effectively. Because I'm now in a position of humility, I can receive. You're in a position of power, so you you know that it's your responsibility to transmit. It's also pleasant to be in that position, right? So, oh, I have a willing and receptive student, humans like that, and therefore I'm gonna learn much more quickly, you're gonna get much more satisfying mentorship experiences much more quickly. It's so funny how true that is across the board. If you're mm -hmm. trying to learn a skill, if you're trying to get good at something, learn how to fail quickly and fail forward. But most people still don't do that. I was thinking about this uh, in terms of Instagram, how mm -hmm. now you can gain status uh, through a social media following, but you don't need to actually get good at the thing. You just need to present to enough people that you're good at the thing. Yeah. Like in the olden days, you would get a mentor, you would try and fail and try and fail. And after years of hard work, you would gain the respect of your peers. And that was the dopamine hit. Now, as long as I get that angle right on the Instagram photo, I get that same dopamine hit immediately. There have always been posers, right? Posers are not a new phenomenon. And in fact, what I've come to realize is that when Jesus is talking, like Jesus spends a huge amount of the New Testament railing against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why? Because they're posers. They signal virtue. They, you know, wear ash cloth and, you know, they, they give away lots of money in public displays. They are the most intense about their Judaism and the devo their devotion to God. But ultimately, it's a big show. So that's something that humans have always done and in an evolutionary context. It's just Batesian mimicry. So the classic example of that is the milk snake. Um, you know, the milk snake, right? It has... The, I don't know this. Oh, okay. So the, you, so there's, there's two, um, there's, there's a coral snake and a milk snake and they have very much the same banding patterns. So they look very much the same. One is deadly venomous. The other one is fucking harmless. Um, and so that's why, you know, you can't actually tell the difference between them. And that's why they have red on yellow, kill a fellow, uh, red on black, venom lack, right? So if the red and the yellow are touching, then you are going to die. And if the red and the black are touching, then you're fine. Um, but why do, why does this evolve? It evolves because it's expensive to produce venom. And so when there's a snake that has produced venom and that, you know, all the animals in the environment now know that snake is venomous, well, there's an opportunity for the knockoff to come in, get very much the same banding pattern, don't bother to produce the venom. It's the same thing as handbags. Oh, Gucci has made this very expensive handbag. So we just copy that and then we can sell lots and lots of handbags, even though it's not the real deal. And the same thing happens in human cultures. You get posers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you don't need to get good at surfing to get the same amount of likes. You just need to use the right hashtags. That's right. I could I could easily... The poser snake is just using the right hashtags. But as, as poser snake surfer, as the poser surfer, what should I be doing? It's pretty obvious now. I didn't even know about the wetsuit tan, but now I'm going to go get in my wetsuit, 
get in a sunbed, tan the fuck <laughs> up, and probably overdo it, right? right? Like, posers always overdo it because they're trying so hard to signal it. So I will look like one of those kanguro blackface girls that walk around Japan, right? I will be so fucking dark in my face and so fucking pale everywhere else. And but and people like you, experts in a particular domain, will know that I'm a poser. Like, you'll notice that, like, oh, he's always walking around with his surfboard, but he t- carries it in entirely the wrong way. But the majority of people will be fooled. And therefore, I will get all those social benefits without having to actually go through the hard work of developing the venom, of having to really train up and skill up. Yeah. I learned recently that Houdini spent the last number of his years... Um, uh, Exposing charlatans. Mm-hmm. Did you know about this? Uh, I, I may like, have heard of it. Yeah, yeah, they would have. Yeah, there were a, a number of charlatans who would pretend to have real magical powers, and he would go to the events and show people exactly the tricks that they were playing. Right, and it seems like you have spent a good part of your life exposing those bad ideas. Mm-hmm. Because you understand the system and you're articulate enough to be able to point out uh, where the bullshit is. Yeah, I um, fraud is a real problem. Yes, that's fraud, the word I was fraud, for. fraud is a problem, and you know people generally think of fraud as a problem of credit cards or you know financial dealings or Bernie Madoff. But there is also social fraud. Um, you know, uh, John Height, as John Height says, you know, uh, if you're talking about politics, people generally say follow the money. If you're talking about a social system, you follow the prestige. So there are prestige fraudsters and sometimes they're fairly harmless, right? They're a cost on the system, but it's not a critical failure. Like, do I really damage the system, particularly if I get my fake wetsuit tan and walk around with a surfboard and, you know, a few women are fooled into thinking that I am some great surfer and therefore I achieve sexual access that maybe I didn't earn or deserve. Maybe it's not the most catastrophic thing. If, on the other hand, I get enough social power that I am now set up as a surf guru and start dispensing advice to people that is bad and dangerous, then I become a real social threat. And that fraud has to be combated. It's only when the harem occurs that people <laughs> need to start calling bullshit. Exactly. Hunter with his harem due to the wetsuit tan. It's a really, that is maybe the worst cult that yeah. I have ever Ten heard Ten women of. rubbing sunscreen <laughs> up and down. Bullshit! Heresy! Oh my God. God. But but like we have there's probably like you do saran wrap around the neck so that you don't get any sunscreen yeah. above a lot, of, yeah. a lot of baby power powder and saran wrap. Yeah, it's that's a really it's a terrible cult. Um but yeah, but that but that problem of fraud is a huge one and it's and that that social media has made that fraud easier. Um and that's why you have so this is a so for example in the Middle East that's a problem of fraud. There are a lot of guys who now signal that they are the most devoted to Islam. And so there are all sorts of social markers. My favorite is the Zabiba. So Zabiba is the Arabic word for raisin. And there are some people who supposedly, because they pray so hard, bro, they end up with a welt on their forehead. 
So this was not a thing like my parents, because my parents were in the Middle East in the 70s and 80s. And they would say, you know, we'd never seen the Zabiba like nobody had a Zabiba. And then at some point, somebody started developing a Zabiba. Obviously, you know, that's the ultimate social marker. Like you see that guy with that welt in that forehead and you're like, that dude prays so hard. Like he loves Allah more than anyone, bro. So uh, people started obviously faking this they would literally take a rock to their forehead and work it to to develop that welt so now you have this very visible very obvious social signaler of how virtuous you are the same thing has then happened you have all these if you're going to be an imam and you want to get a bunch of instagram followers or facebook followers what do you do are you super moderate and say Islam is peace and we, you know, have to really work on ourselves and, you know, we have to make sure we follow the five pillars, including zakat, giving money to the poor. And, you know, we have to pray five times a day. And, oh, by the way, you don't get, you get double the virtue for giving money without anybody knowing it. So you have to be very private about your giving. That's part of what Muhammad commanded. No, that's not, that's a terrible, terrible social media strategy. Far better to be the firebrand, which is why firebrand preachers have always gotten more attention in every religion. And the same thing is true with, uh, you know, any, any subculture. Like, it's way easier to get attention by being controversial, by being divisive, and by demonizing other groups. And so those small number of individuals who actually are posers and don't represent Islam at all are the ones who have gotten massive amounts of attention and lots of young people who are lost and angry for whatever reason have gone drawn into that. That is not a unique phenomenon to the Arab world. So Scott Atran last year wrote an article all about how the alt-right and the ISIS are very much the same phenomenon. It's the same social phenomenon. But the rhetoric is obviously tailored to whatever that subculture is. So if I, you know, if I go into a group of surfers and I'm trying to signal my status by talking about Islam, I'm not going to do anything for them. If I go into a bunch of surfers and start trying to signal my status by, you know, the fact that uh, I bench press more than anybody else, they're probably not going to be impressed because that's not what works in that culture. In that culture, it would have to be, I surfed this wave, which was so big. My wetsuit tan is deeper than anybody else. There's more of a two-tone going on. So they're they're (laughs) different yeah (laughs) two-tone but so there are different variants of this phenomenon and the ideologies are different but the psychology is the same yeah and another uh another aspect of the psychology that's the same between say the alt-right and isis is that there is a tightening around the ideas chris ryan talks a lot about the pressure cooker situation Mm -hmm. that both the alt-right and isis are very um very much against women Mm -hmm. and if and it is that poser attitude that makes you tighten down because there's so much fear if you are genuinely an expert like if i say like hunter you're an idiot you you don't know what you're talking about you'll be like okay that's fine. You're not going to be like, what? <laughs> Seriously, bro? Seriously, bro? You're, right. I'm so two-toned. Right. Uh, and 
you, you, you poke, you poke at someone's vulnerability and the more vulnerable they are, they will tighten down and it creates that pressure cooker situation. So it's a good, it's a good test to see how someone reacts to adversity, uh, to see how good they really are. Yeah, it's, or and how comfortable in their own skin they really are, and that's that's I mean that's that insecurity. Um, is actually as you say this, it reminds me. Uh, have you read Natural Born Heroes? No, I've heard of it. That's the the guy who wrote Born to Run, right? Yeah, it's his uh, one of his follow up books. It's excellent. It's a really really fun. It's like a fun great read, and um, it's also I mean it's one of those books that works really well as an audiobook. Um, which is uh, an extra special category because then it actually fits within your life, um, especially as an Angelino, right? I'm not oriented around the tides. I'm oriented around traffic, which is another sort of tide. Um, so that's my frame of oh, reference. I've never thought about yeah. that. Um, and you definitely know how to have to know how to read those tides. You know, there are, you know, you might check out whatever surf websites to get insight. I check ways. Yeah. Like, those you know. back alleys yeah, are your, exactly. your low tide. Oh man. <laughs> There's a sneaky little windswell coming through this alleyway. <laughs> There's a really, and actually it is the same thing, right? Like there are, there are spots that you don't want anybody to know about. Like, don't let people know about fountain, dude. Like that is the secret. Like right. if you can take fountain, but we can't let everybody yeah, know about everyone's going on the 405 though yeah. the 405 is malibu <laughs> yeah exactly and the 90 the 90 is actually the great secret of the west side yeah yeah um but the yeah there there is that tightening because there is that insecurity and because you're trying to maintain an image that is ultimately hollow um there's nothing behind it and so you get very yeah posers are very defensive of that image and feel the need to deplatform, marginalize anybody who challenges that. And I mean, SJWs, right? There's, there are people who are actually doing social justice don't need to be so strident, right? So, I mean, that's the thing is that the SJWs and the alt-right, it's the same phenomenon again, because there is this small group of very strident individuals who are massively insecure and are trying to signal their virtue and don't actually practice it. Right. Um, because if you're actually in the business of doing it, the actual challenges of doing it are so tough and so difficult that you are engaged with that challenge. You're not spending your time trying to convince the group that you are the most engaged with that challenge. Right. So how would you uh, teach an interested group of students to become more literate in this? Yeah, I think it's mostly psychological self-awareness. That's what it comes down to. It's, um, you know, metacognition, thinking about thinking. So it's about becoming under, it's, I think part of it is evolutionary psychology. So understanding why we evolved to behave this way, understanding evolution, understanding, for example, Batesian mimicry, that example of the two snakes, which Batesian mimicry occurs all throughout nature. It occurs all throughout commerce. It occurs all throughout social groups. Um, but understanding that desire for belonging that is that is you know william james said the deepest principle in human nature is to be appreciated that's what humans crave more than anything because the group is our insurance mechanism lone individuals die they don't have cognitive reserve so if we have a group i mean you know zombie apocalypse right who's on your zombie apocalypse team well 
you want on your zombie apocalypse team, you want people with a diverse set of skills. So I would love to have you on my zombie apocalypse team, right? Because you bring a whole bunch of skills that I guarantee I don't have. You know, you know how to hunt, right? You've done some of that, right? You can navigate tides and water. So if we are trying to get off the mainland, right, then that's that's how we want to go. Yeah. You have a buddy who apparently lives in Marina del Rey who has a boat and he's a groovy guy. So, <laughs> you know, that's good. These right. are all great things for the team. Um, you know, Chris can come because he's a groovy guy. Like there are people you like who are going to provide social benefit, right? And it might not be that Chris necessarily has a lot of technical skills, but he will help create social cohesion, which is ultimately going to make the group more secure and healthy, which is valuable. So that's super valuable. If on the other hand, you're on your own, you are fucked because if I don't have a particular skill set then it would be incredibly expensive for me to then go and learn that. So there is a reason why we evolved to crave belonging so much because that's our insurance policy. So what you have when, you know, people are virtue signaling or whatever is, is that they don't have that. They don't have that security and they're desperate to belong to that group because they're trying to achieve some sort of security. They're essentially in, a form of solitary confinement. Yeah, and even recognizing what social creatures we are is a mind blower for a lot of people yeah. because we're taught to be individualists, individualistic and the lone wolf out, <laughs> on, out on the prowl. Yeah. Forging his own path. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that the there's a, the lone wolf thing is great because there's um, actually so a lot of this is multi-level selection, um, which is a, a, a school in evolutionary biology. Um, and there's the whole of multi-level selection was beautifully summed up in Game of Thrones. Um, so there's at the end of the last season, this won't spoil, I don't think anything, but there's Arya and Sansa are standing on the walls of Winterfell and they say the lone wolf uh, in, win in winter, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. And that's, that is the cornerstone of human experience. The lone wolf does, in times of plenty, yeah, you can be a lone wolf. But when things are getting tough, you hunker down, you get into that group, you tighten up. That's why wars always bring nations together. And, you know, that, that can be a healthy thing in terms of a real external threat. It's also something that dictators have always explo exploited to create the idea of some sort of external threat, real or imagined, in order to create cohesion around them. Um, so that there isn't any dissent and any questioning. So these these mechanisms in, in evolutionary psychology, they the, the real question with them always is appropriate or inappropriate. None of these things are bad. Every emotion has a place. Every psychological response has a place when it's useful. But is it appropriate to the situation or is it inappropriate to the situation, which is why it all comes back to situational awareness. Are you able to read the situation and say, hey, we're closing ranks right now around the leaders and saying that's totally appropriate. This is the time to do that. Or are you able to say, hey, we're closing ranks around the leaders. This isn't a real threat externally. And uh, he's actually just doing it to you know, gather power towards himself. So that comes down to wisdom. Was there a moment when you were a kid that you realized that you had this skill? No, I didn't have this skill as a kid. How did you... I had this need as a kid. What was the, the need to... Make sense of culture. Okay. 
that for me, that's, that's, that's my experience is because I grew up moving around between all sorts of different places. So my data set yeah. is confusing as fucking possible. And so I've spent my life looking for frameworks that can make sense of all that confusing data. Right. So the experience that, you know, we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, right. You know, you grew, you grew up in surfer culture, right. It's one of the cultures you grew up in, in practice, everybody grows up in multiple cultures, right. There's the culture of your family. There's the culture of America. There's a culture of Santa Cruz. There's a culture of surfing. There's whatever other, there's the environmental culture that you got drawn into and all of that. The, the encounter between those cultures creates these moments of what are called cultural rich moments, right? Where you suddenly become aware of your own culture. You're like, Oh shit, I do this thing. Not everybody does it. Apparently. Wow. I did grow up in a small town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that moment, it's like yeah. people who never left don't realize it's a small town. That's right. Exactly. And so I left my small town very, very early just because of what my childhood was. And so have been going through this experience of, you know, there's the old joke. It's not research. It's me search. Like trying to solve a very personal problem and along the way found things that were useful. I honestly didn't start finding things that were useful until, I mean, the first one for me was really Jared Diamond. Uh, that was like the first, I was like, oh, there are answers. They do exist. Um, Did this, he write Guns, Germs, and Steel? Steel? Yeah. Was that the book that you that read? That was the book. Because we, the, the, like, y y the, the book, the whole of Guns, Germs, and Steel centers around, it begins with what he calls Yali's question. So Yali was this, this New Guinean man, this Papua New Guinean guy, who asked him this very simple question, why does the West have so much cargo? Like, cargo is what Papua New Guineans call wealth or property. And he was like, why do they have so much stuff and we have so little? And Yali's question was like many great questions, simple, straightforward, to the point, and was a question that I'd always had because I'd grown up as Brian Callen uh, always makes this great joke that our childhood was seeing great poverty from inside an air-conditioned car. And that was our childhood. And it's massively discombobulating. Like you are sitting there in this car and there are these kids outside who are desperately poor. They look like you. They're the same age. And like, why am I here? And why are they there? And that's odd. And you don't like it. And it's unsettling, particularly because the natural human response when we see other humans in need is to share. Like we are social creatures and that's what we want to do. And there's a pane of glass in the way. And then there's just so much poverty around you that there's no way that you could possibly, you know, share all your stuff. It's also not your stuff. It's your parents stuff. So it, that was a that was a core emotional experience for me. And so reading Guns, Germs and Steel, I began to start to make sense of that and begin to start to see ways that we could get ourselves out of the, that situation and get towards a much healthier human tribe. Did you feel like you connected with these authors at a young age more than other kids? Uh, so like, what, yeah, what was that like? Speaking tribally, yeah. my, my dad is obsessed with books, okay. which is a thing that he got from his dad. Like the, one of the cardinal sins in my household was putting down a book too roughly. Like if you took a book and you just sort of like threw it on the counter, my father would snap and he would say, books are special. 
Like that was the attitude. And what I realize now is, is that the intuitions that I have around books are that they are sacred. They are special. And it's not, you know, a lot of cultures have that with specific books like the Quran or, you know, the Talmud or whatever, the Bhagavad Gita. For me, it was all books. All books are sacred and all books are special, which starts to sound like the Monty Python song, Every Sperm is Sacred. Um, but, <laughs> but all books are special. And so I always had a very particular relationship with books, bookstores, libraries, and, um, you know, I then started to, I mean, the, the, that, that moment with, with guns, germs and steel was this recognition that there were other things out there. And so in parallel in college, there were two, two educations going on. There was me hoop jumping, which is, had been my experience with education until that point. Like, oh, this is a hoop jumping exercise. We get pieces of paper, we get grades, parents are happy you know, we get social approval. There's that. So there was that. And then there was the actual education of, I have questions that I've had for a really long time. How the fuck do I answer these? Has anyone studied this? Has anyone tried to figure out? And part of the experience in college was that the hoop jumping just became less and less interesting. And the actual education and the actual questions became more and more interesting. Um, and the disparity between the two just became more and more obvious. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I, um, I so appreciate books because it is the best version of what that author really thinks. Mm -hmm. um, one of my... I, I have this uh, reoccurring dream that I'm doing a podcast and it's like that scene from The Matrix where his mouth shuts and mm. skin moves over his mouth and he can't speak and I have this this dream where I'm trying to say what I mean and I know what I'm trying to say but I'm not articulate enough to say it in a way that resonates with people and I so appreciate authors because they say what the fuck they mean mm -hmm. and they obsess over words in a way that the idea can change the world. So one of my favorite things that I've ever read is that there's a, a commencement speech that was given by William Duresowitz, um, and it's it's called Leadership in Solitude. And one of the things he talks about there in there is that books are distilled thought. And the amount of distillation that goes into an article so it's probably five hours worth of distilled thought. The amount of distillation that goes into a book, that is years or decades of distilled thought. And that's, I think, what people don't appreciate about books. They, they think, oh, the book is long, it's time-consuming, it's much easier to read articles. But what you want is you want pure gold. And pure gold, there is pure gold out there. It's not every book. But some books are decades or centuries of distilled thought that have been really, really honed down and refined to the absolute best. And that's the real work is to find that distilled gold. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, that's also why you need and that, that's why you need a community to help you pan for that gold. Right. Where did you learn to become articulate? Is um, that always just your, uh, you always had that ability? No. I mean, the experience that you described from the Matrix, yeah. that's the experience of being a child. That's, you, you profoundly feel things emotionally. 
and you don't have the words to articulate your desires in a way that other people can understand, and you don't have a way to be heard. And that was my experience in that car, you know, in Rio, looking at great poverty from inside the air-conditioned car. There was a lot that was strongly felt there, and I've spent my entire life trying to find the words to begin to say what I felt in a way that could articulately persuade people to do things differently. And that's cobbled together from lots and lots of different authors, and we're constantly trying to cobble together the words to be able to speak up. I mean, the the example that I always think about this that I always really appreciate is um, from the McCarthy hearings. So there were think about think about the experience of being Americans in in the era of Joseph McCarthy. There are a lot of people who feel that something is wrong emotionally and socially. They know that something is wrong, but nobody can quite find the words to express what is wrong. And it takes a number of people, right? Uh, good night and good luck, right? Describe what this was, this situation. This for people. W- and what was wrong about it? Like you have to, you have to put your finger on it to be able to know this bugs me. Something about this bugs me. But what is it that bugs me? What is wrong here? And then you know the big pivotal moment was Joseph Welch. So Joseph Welch was a lawyer. There was a younger lawyer who was working for him, and then the younger lawyer had 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 gone to some meetings of the American Communist right. Party. Give a little bit of a background, background into yeah. McCarthyism and what this time was like. Yeah. I think it'll help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Joseph McCarthy was a senator um, from Wisconsin, I believe. Um, and in the 1950s, so after the end of World War II, uh, you know, the, the, the Nazis have been wiped out, the Japanese have been wiped out, so the last two men standing, essentially, you know, America and Russia, now decide that they have to fight for global supremacy. So uh, it becomes an ideological battle, communism versus democracy and capitalism. Um, and so McCarthy does what demagogues have often done, which is aggregates power towards himself by creating a a sense of external threat, right? So that's an old, old playbook that works in our evolutionary psychology. Hitler did the same thing, right? Hitler burnt down the Reichstag. He burnt down the German parliament because, oh, we're being attacked by communists. So therefore we have to close ranks. Yes, it's an extreme situation. And, you know, we need to clarify the leadership. So yes, I need to be Fuhrer for life, right? This is an old playbook. And in fact, the Romans knew this. This is, they, the Romans actually had, dictator was an actual political office in Rome. Um, and it was that in times of crisis, they would give all political power to one individual, which is actually quite smart, right? You have these huge external threats. You don't have time for group decision making or debate. You need somebody who can call the shots who's reliable. But the problem was is that dictator is supposed to be a temporary office that you only had for a few weeks or months until the crisis had passed. And then you were supposed to return power to the Senate. This almost never happened because once people had power, they never bothered to return it. They found ways to prolong the crisis. They found ways to justify why they needed to stay in power a little bit longer um, until eventually the new status quo had settled in and people had gotten used to the idea that this person was just in charge. So McCarthy is doing that. 
right? And most of what McCarthy is doing is, is that he is saying that there are communist infiltrators within our midst. So this is great. It's a great strategy because we can't see them. We don't know who they are, but there is a threat within our midst. We can't identify them, but they're here and they're trying to undermine uh, America. And so he conducted a witch hunt. And he kept on saying that there were these communists in the military, in the most powerful corridors of power. And he said that he had a list, a list of who these communist infiltrators were, but that he couldn't reveal the list for matters of national security. So he's able to create, he's again a poser, able to create this idea that I am the most American, I'm the most virtuous bro, like I care most about our values, but... I can't reveal to you why I know that, because obviously we have to keep this as a, as a matter of national security. So he does this for a number of years and, you know, gets people kicked out of their jobs, demonizes them, causes a whole bunch of problems. Um, and at, at the, the, there are various people who tried to expose McCarthy as a poser. So the Good Night and Good Luck, which is a great film to watch, is all about Edward Murrow trying to expose McCarthy. And McCarthy wasn't in power because he was obviously a demagogue. He was in power because it's Batesian mimicry. He did a really good job of faking. If you listen to McCarthy, he speaks in a very reasonable voice. He's very calm. And, you know, he makes fairly articulate arguments. Like, if there are, do you really think the Soviets wouldn't try and infiltrate us? Right. Of course they did. And the Soviets really did try and infiltrate us, you know, and is that not something that should be combated and that we should find? So it all starts to make sense. But Murrow tried to point out the pattern of what he was doing and that it didn't necessarily fit what was really going on. But it was ultimately Joseph Welch who exposed McCarthy. Um, and, you know, there was this young lawyer who was working with Joseph Welch, and he had attended some Communist Party meetings, but Welch talked to the guy, knew the guy, had a relationship with the guy, and felt that McCarthy, uh, this was a youthful indiscretion, and it shouldn't be brought up, because if McCarthy brought it up in the hearings, it would destroy this young guy's life. And so he talked to McCarthy and said, okay, I've talked to him. This doesn't seem like a real thing. Please don't bring this up. McCarthy brings it up and Welch snaps and he says, have you no decency, sir? At long last, have you no decency? And what, what Welch did was he finally gave a name to what people had been feeling. There was something wrong with McCarthy and it was a lack of decency. And once he had done that, that's that moment when the emperor has no clothes Suddenly, now people have seen what is really going on, and now we have the ability to move forward. But it's, it's not the, the, it is precisely, we, we have to remember that we are, as a species, you know, we were nonverbal first, we're emotional first, and then language had to be accumulated over a long time. We're still accumulating language. So when we're born, we're born without language. And so it takes us a long time to find the words. And our toolkit has gotten more and more sophisticated for being able to call these things out. We can easily use things like poser, right? 
it's not that's a thing that the culture has figured out like at this point that there are opposers is an obvious thing we can use words like fraud we understand that fraud is a thing what what we're doing here is we're just connecting the dots and we're just seeing that this is a larger pattern right and seeing that oh this happens in genetics with you know these snakes oh it happens with handbags oh it happens in every single subculture and when you start to see that larger pattern then that necessitates a very different response because if you think that the alt-right is just about about a bunch of racist dudes then that that diagnosis has a very particular prescription right okay they are just racist dudes they're just bad dudes we need to marginalize and we need to exclude them when you understand that what's going on is is that there are a bunch of people who already feel marginalized and excluded and they have emotional needs and then they have just gravitated to whatever the local ideology is that helps them try and solve that, then you actually realize they need to be included. You need to find ways to deal with whatever their emotional trauma is and help them work through that. And that's increasingly what goes on in the Middle East around ISIS is they spend their time trying to de-radicalize these people. Right. And so we need to figure out strategies for oh, wait, I, the people in the Middle East try and de-radicalize uh, ISIS. Or? Yeah, they try and de-radicalize. So there's obviously there's a spectrum of radicalization. Right. right? So there's a there's a there's you have people who maybe have slightly kooky ideas. And then there are people who are out there beheading people. And that's yeah. that's the extreme. So what you know, it's like an elevator. Right. Like a lot of people get on at the first floor. And then some of those people will ride the elevator all the way to the penthouse. And it's the same thing with the spectrum of radicalization. But what you want to do in terms of how you make sure that as few people get to the penthouse as possible is that you want to be trying to get people off the elevator, as many people off the elevator at lower and lower and lower floors and get them to come down at various stages. And so that's that's the process that we need to get into worldwide is realizing that there are lots of people who we need to de-radicalize. And a large part of that is trying to understand, don't get caught up on the rhetoric of what they're saying, because it's, you know, if, if you've got a five-year-old or a 12-year-old, we don't get caught up on what they're saying, right? They're, they're saying whatever crazy shit they're saying, but we understand, oh, what's going on emotionally? Oh, you're tired, you're hungry, you're frustrated. Like, oh, some girl didn't, you know, reciprocate. I or told whatever. that to someone on the alt-right ones. They, they didn't <laughs> respond well. <laughs> you're just yeah. tired. Yeah, you're hangry. <laughs> yeah, um, have a Snickers. No, it's, and that's the, that's the thing, is, is that that, how this is done, it has to be done very carefully right but there i mean human history is pretty fucked up like we've done some really fucked up shit and so there's a lot of trauma there on all sides like look at the me too movement a lot of what the me too movement is a lot of women who have been raped or sexually assault assaulted not been heard because most rapes don't go reported and suddenly there's an opportunity to deal with that trauma in a public environment and what needs to actually happen there is we need to talk about like actually what has happened to all of these women, right? Like what has our society actually created? And you know, why is that conversation not going particularly well? Well, because there are a lot of men who are afraid of false accusation. 
That's, yeah. that's what you hear again and again. And that also needs to be emotionally dealt with so that we can start to have some truth and reconciliation and we can start to talk about, okay, what are the, what are the, what are the real cases, right? Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, that's appalling and that's criminal and we shouldn't allow that in our society. Aziz Ansari, maybe not so much. And we also don't want to live in a society. Would we want to live in a society where any woman who claims to have been sexually assaulted instantly, the person goes to jail? No. So we also have to deal with false accusations, but that's, that's again, that comes down to wisdom and that comes down to judgment and the ability to tell, okay, what's, what's the real deal? What's, what's real rape? What's real sexual assault? And then what is a lack of social skills? Um, and that's that's the challenge, and that's what we all have to develop as a community. Yeah, couple things um, on that. So I grew up, uh, as as you know, uh, in the environmental community, mm-hmm. and environmentalists lose a lot. Yeah, they lose a lot, and I think that one reason why they lose a lot is because they draw these very small circles around who they are and who everyone else is yeah it's very exclusive um conversely what someone like martin luther king did was draw this massive circle Mm -hmm. one of his famous quotes about how uh you know we are all brothers and sisters and some of our brothers and sisters are not getting the dignity that they deserve that's an argument that allows you to win Mm -hmm. because it's very inclusive Um, He was also very emotive. One thing that annoys me so much about environmentalists is that uh, they blovate and they Mm -hmm. don't know when to stop talking and they try and make um, intellectual or or, or I guess numbers based arguments to engender uh, an emotion um, and and action change. Whereas what you were talking about with McCarthyism uh, and and the Me Too movement is that these are all very emotive arguments. Many times, it's only a single word that we were looking for. Mm-hmm. Decency. That was the word that everyone w- was looking for. So it wasn't about making this elaborate argument. It was about, in the right moment, picking the right word that everyone resonated with. Because as a child, even if we don't know what the word decency means, we feel it. And I think that... Th- that is how you win. And that's kind of what I was going back to with like this, this reoccurring dream that I have that I won't be able to find the words in the moment to point out the fraud. Many times it doesn't take that many words. It just takes tuning in and, and that kind of metacognition is there a meta, was it meta thinking? What, what yeah. Was metacognition. Metacognition. Just thinking about your thinking own thinking about your own thinking that is so important because, uh, most people don't do that. Yeah. And we really seek that on a deep level because it allows us when the, when someone is able to articulate the word that you're feeling, it allows you to, uh, feel the world more deeply. And most people don't do that because we don't have to do that until we leave our small town. And it's only when you have those cultural rich moments that you are forced into that. And what's exciting about this moment in history is, is that we're all leaving our small town. 
Like nobody gets to stay in their small town anymore. You you can stay in your small thanks town. Thanks to hashtags. Thanks to hashtags, you you are gonna leave your small town. Yeah. You're gonna be exposed to a whole bunch of things, even if you stay right in Abilene, Texas. And the result of that is is that we are you know, the first reaction to that is fear, which is what the world is living through right now. But ultimately there's gonna be more and more curiosity and more and more reflection. And the world that comes out of that is a really exciting world to live in. Do you, or do you think that it will be uh, ultra tribalism because it's easier to go into your small group and and have your reality and have a charismatic figure be spitting that reality back to you? Because that's what we're seeing now. So yeah, some people are doing that. Right. And there are the Amish, right? There are people who make the decision that the world has gotten too complex. They don't like it. They want to dial it back. They want to have their closed community. So there will be those reactions. It's not like there's going to be one reaction. Different humans will react in different ways. But I think that for those of us who have found the benefits of reflection, of metacognition, of curiosity, of openness, of deliberately putting yourself in uncomfortable and new situations, that we have to we honestly have to convert people to our tribe. Like we think that our tribe offers the best way forward for humanity. We're not threatened by other people choosing a different way. Like if you want to be Amish, great. If you want to be, you know, an ultra conservative Hasidic Jew, that's your choice, right? We want that kind of diversity. We want people to have different strategies and different approaches because from an evolutionary perspective, that's just smart. The last thing that you want is a monoculture. But, at the same time, in terms of modes of cognition, we want to not only practice curiosity and reflection, we want to encourage it in others. Right. And that is that process of uh, de-radicalization and, you know, helping people find the words to express the feelings that they have. And uh, we just, uh, I, I wasn't equipped with those tools. And I don't, I still don't have all those tools, right? If I had all those tools, we would just drop this podcast and then boom, yeah. ripples, right? Yeah. The, the world would be... Like that last yeah. scene in The Matrix when Neo just <laughs> takes off into the stratosphere, <laughs> Hunter Mots. Yeah, unfortunately not. Um, so what are you, uh, what are you most passionate about, passionate about uh, teaching people right now? If you were to give a speech... Um, to a group of engaged young people, what would that, what would that be on? And, and, um, it could be a new idea even that you're mulling around right now, but what's, what is important for people to know and what are the, the decisions that people can make in a different way so that they can further thrive? Well, I think, can we go back a sure. second to your point about environmentalists? Because it's yeah. clear you're mulling over something there and trying to articulate something there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could be giving the talk to environmentalists. Well, because I, I think what's interesting is what you're saying is something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and the I had an, an acting teacher once who said to me, you can either be right or you can win. Right. And I spent a lot of my childhood trying to be right, which is a lot of what that poser behavior is about. You're trying to beat everyone. You're trying to dominate everybody as opposed to winning, which is about building a large enough coalition and a large enough team that you can achieve things. Right. And I think that one thing that frustrates me so much about the environmental movement is because is that it is if I find it so ironic that the environmental movement is marginalized and people can't relate to them, although 
the environment is literally the only thing we all have in common. Mm-hmm. We all drink water. We all breathe air. And yet, if you say you're an environmentalist, you're like, oh, you're that kind of person. How did we get here? Yeah, well, I think this is... Um, so, have you read Dan Coyle's The Culture Code? No. It is superb. Love Dan Coyle. He also wrote The Talent Code, which is another great book. Um, but The Culture Code um, is all about what makes effective cultures, what makes groups effective. And he talks about three things, psychological safety, vulnerability, and purpose. So effective groups, you know, there's been all this talk about safe spaces and, you know, in certain uh, subsectors of the podcast community, you know, there's the an easy way to signal virtue is to shit all over college kids with these safe spaces, bro. But in, in practice, psychological safety is actually what you want. The problem is, is that uh, most college campuses focus on ideological safety. So it's actually that you're, def- you're creating a place where certain ideas can be expressed, but also certain ideas cannot be expressed. That's not psychological safety. Psychological safety is, hey, listen, Kyle, you are part of the group. I love you. You're great. So you can say whatever crazy-ass idea you want. That's what real psychological safety is, because that's what allows dissent to happen. Um, and the problem is, is that is that sort of dynamic is very easy to fuck up. Um, and so they've done studies with there's a great study that they did where they would have a, a group of people and they would have one person who was there as an actor. And that actor's job was to play one of three roles. Asshole jerk or slacker and you know if they're the slacker they what's the difference between asshole and jerk jerk? yeah so uh jerk is um i think i one one is a part of a body the other is a movement (laughs) i i'm probably gonna fuck this up so i'm 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 not gonna bloviate and pretend that i know i'd have to reread the book but slacker is obvious right like you sit there and the guy starts yawning and stretching and doing all of that and pretty quickly that behavior becomes contagious and the whole group starts becoming less engaged less effective they're all you know not paying attention and whatever and that's again evolutionary smart if if one of us is not going to pull our weight then why would i pull my weight and you know really exert myself when probably this group isn't going to work out assholes and jerks i think assholes i can't re- no i really can't remember nouns and verbs yeah <laughs> nouns and verbs but the but the 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 jerk ba- it creates a toxic and divisive environment and it's there it's like mccarthy right and they're able to fuck up the whole dynamic that's the amazing thing is is that it really only does take one rotten apple to spoil the whole barrel and so i think my sense is is that the environmental movement has been hijacked. Like it has been hijacked by a very small number of individuals who spend their time making people wrong so they can be right. And they're posers and they don't really practice it. And they have managed to distort and twist the ideology so that it has gotten very far from its goals. And so that it is more important that they are right than that the environmental movement wins. So how does it win? It wins by creating that diverse, inclusive coalition that you're talking about, where we're celebrating sustainable practice everywhere. And you shared a great example of that with Ducks Unlimited. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. Ducks Unlimited, for people who don't know, is a hunting group. Uh, it was a group of duck hunters who found that wetlands were disappearing everywhere all, uh, over America. So they developed a coalition and started funding uh, wetland uh, wetland res- restoration um, so that they could hunt ducks. So there was the incentive to do that. Uh, there was the money. There was the coalition. And they all had that single goal. But they're hunters. Yes. Mostly conservative. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Probably a large number of them are Christian. Yeah. And voted for George W. Bush. Right. And that doesn't fit with the model of what an environmentalist looks like. Teddy Roosevelt also doesn't fit with the modern version of a, of an environmentalist. Like if I want to, if I want to, so what's the, the two-tone wetsuit tan of environmentalism? Like if I wanted to pose as like, I'm so environmentalist. Hybrids and flax seeds. <laughs> hybrids, flax seeds, granola, dreadlocks, all of that sort of stuff. Already think about, think about all the conversations around inclusivity, around race and gender and all of that. It applies to any group. If I am a duck hunter and I walk into environmentalist movement wearing my camo flak jacket or whatever else, do I feel like I belong in this room of granola crunching hippies? Right. So let's say, let's put you in the position of communicator. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say that your local wetland that you care about and um, hike around frequently is going to disappear mm-hmm. and there are a bunch of different ki- different people in your community uh that you want to engage mm-hmm. what is the message that you and how would you structure that message to win well i think you've got to you got to find all the potential stakeholders and all the potential people who would benefit from it so you're going to have people who like to watch like they're bird watchers that that that'll be a group of people who would care duck hunters that would be a people who would care uh people who like to walk their dogs people who like to jog people who are botanists people who uh potentially teachers who want to bring kids to engage them right so what you're trying to do is ultimately find ways to engage every member of the community or at least a large enough plurality of the community that there's the the community is bonded around defending this wetland and that's that's the real goal is that it it's the the in winter the lone wolf dies and the pack survives like you need to get the pack to be rallied around this cause because that's how it actually works and if the pack is 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 cohesive enough and strong enough they can handle anything any corporation that tries to come in and do something any government that tries to come in and do something they can effectively fight that off and the problem is that the pack is so divided and you know scattered not just around environmentalism because i mean we can talk about environmentalism but it's a whole range of issues same thing with education that's my particular thing and it's the same thing education has become this like i mean here's here's the real question if you if there was a party being hosted by environmentalists and or educators would you want to (laughs) go no Mm. no ah the new episode (laughs) of ozarks out tonight Uh, i think i'm gonna check that out yeah there's there's no way in which i get excited to go hang out with a bunch of environmentalists or educators it's a it's there's a real branding and marketing problem for both of those tribes and it's hard to get people 
excited about those things. And that tells you you have a real problem. And what, what, what does any corporation have to do when it has a real branding problem? It has to reinvent its brand and it needs to rebuild and do all of that. And that's what we have to do with all of these communities. But the, the other thing too is, is that I think that also we have to stop having all these divided up areas of interest. Like it's you and I both lose if, if we just focus on our respective causes, because we then also don't have a large enough coalition that we can actually do anything effective. Right. And all of these issues are intersectional. Yeah. Education ties into environmentalism, which ties into uh, social justice, which ties into all it's health, all, everything. Yeah, right. So uh, what? So with education, um, mm-hmm. I know that you got to take off soon. We've been going for about an hour. Um, what is the message that you are most um, passionate about right now? Um, I think the the it's it's constantly a series of successive realizations. Sure, but what's but, the what's the latest realization? Yeah, the latest realization is is that uh, national governments will not solve education because national governments are inherently myopic, and we live in a global world. So think about the experience. Like you know, my my fiance is from South Africa. So what education did she get? Right. I mean, she was born in the apartheid era. So the history textbooks were written in a very particular way. And then even though apartheid ended, there was there's institutional lag. So it takes time to change those textbooks. Even when those textbooks get changed, they're now being written by the ANC, which has a very particular agenda. You know, the U.S. government wrote. I mean, I went to school in England, so I learned no U.S. history. Uh, and it was all vaguely lensed through the needs of the British Empire, which is that we were on this great civilization, civilizing mission and all of that. And that's because there is this huge institutional lag, like things last for a really, really long time. And um, so that, that sets up conflict again and again and again, because we are still indoctrinated in the concerns of our small village and end up picking up these prejudices against other groups. And so what it, it's going to take is it's going to take a bottom-up movement to really make sure that we carve out a global education system. And that global education system not only has to be human history, that it understands people as people, not as caricatures. It's very easy to write about World War II and just be like, you know, Hitler was crazy and the Germans are bad people and whatever else it may be, as opposed to trying to understand what were they trying to solve. Why did the Chinese support Mao? Right. It wasn't because they were aiming for, you know, the death of 30 million people. That's not what they're thinking in 1948. Like, let's create a misguided agricultural policy that leads to the death of, you know, tens of millions of people. They were trying to solve very basic emotional needs. Right. They saw hunger. They saw poverty. They saw inequality and they tried to solve it. The problem is, is that with all of these things, humans are bad at causal intelligence. We suck at it. If you give an uh, IQ test to a chimp, an orangutan, and a human toddler on quantities, math, we're no better than or slightly better than chimps. You know, uh, causal reasoning, figuring out why things happen, generally the job of science, no better than chimps. It's only on social learning that we are off the charts. And that's what enables us to figure things out. We figure things out because we compare notes. 
like, hey, Kyle, I've noticed this thing. Have you noticed anything? And you say, yeah, I've noticed this thing. And then we'll put those two things together and we come up with something better. Yeah, the 405 sucks. You should come down this alleyway with me. (laughs) Wait a minute. I feel like that has a different ending. (laughs) Come down this alleyway with me. Uh, Have you no decency, sir? (laughs) But but it is by comparing notes and it is by by having idea sex, right? Right. Which now it sounds even worse. Um, I'm really glad my fiance and my future mother-in-law are listening to this conversation. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, it is by comparing notes and it is by putting things together. So I think that that social learning piece is the most important part is, is that we don't have to figure things out on our own. In fact, we shouldn't try and figure things out on our own. You're no one's supposed to have all the answers. Nobody does have all the answers. Anything that I've given you on this podcast is me socially learning from lots and lots and lots of authors. And my goal with this is not for people to be like, Oh, Hunter's so smart. It's for, it's for people to be like, Oh, Hunter stole a bunch of people's ideas, like, and put them together. Imagine if we all did that. And that's the really exciting opportunity. And that's what the internet is for that. We still haven't used it for is really having a giant global conversation. Not just Facebook talking about it, but actually having it. And that's gonna require all those emotionally difficult things that come in any family. It's gonna require admitting that we were wrong, that we were misguided, that we didn't listen when people were talking to us, that actually we thought this thing, but it turned out it was this entirely other thing. And that's the biggest thing that we have to do is, is that we have to figure out how to improve the social dynamics. Like the internet is often a very toxic place and people aren't listening to each other. And it's not that there people don't have a point, right? Like the me too movement has a point. Like there's been a lot of sexual assault and a lot of rape. And is anybody pro rape? Probably there's somebody on the internet who's pro-rape, but you're going to be hard-pressed to find it. Most of us are anti-rape, right? That hasn't been politicized as an issue. On the other side, there are bros who are worried about false accusations. It's a legitimate concern. False accusations will ruin your life. But the conversation is not about trying to paint every woman who steps forward as a false accuser and trying to paint every man as a rapist. Like, that's not the conversation. The conversation is, oh, fuck, how do we tell the difference between somebody who is actually coming forward with a legitimate concern, somebody who is actually being raped, and a false accusation? And the ability to tell the difference between those two, that's wisdom. And that's what we have to figure out. My man, final question. What are your surfing goals in the next year? I would like to, I'm going to set modest and reasonable surfing goals. I would like to be able to consistently get up and just consistently ride my $99 Costco wave storm into... Oh, man, your social credibility just <laughs> plummeted through how, the basement how, right there. How two-tone is No my... amount of wetsuit tan will <laughs> oh, save no. you from that comment. You were doing so great until that moment. Okay, wh- how do I'm I... am going to have to scrap this whole uh, yeah. podcast. Okay, I'm but sorry. How do, I, how do I bring... But isn't it... Is there not... Is there not value in the surf community to being somebody who is a total novice and knows that they are ignorant no there are there actually is and uh you're representing yourself very well the the um 
hatred and vitriol for Costco boards is that they outsell local shapers. Ooh. So there is this hollowing out in local surf economies because new surfers, rather than buying a local shape, which supports the local economy, go to Costco. So that's right. where that's the social dynamic of that. See, that's that's good. But see, then that's great. So that can then be an education point. Right. Support your local shaper. Yes. But but how much that's uh, a bumper sticker. That is a bumper sticker. But so but it also I see as a novice. Right. Rather than hating on the novice, right. teach the novice. So how would I even find a local shaper? Yes. I don't even know how to do that. You have to teach me. Right. I'm your, uh, what was the Japanese senpai. word? I am your senpai. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Hunter Mods, thank you so much. This was a blast. Thank you so much. People can get in touch with you on Twitter? Yeah, they probably can, I, okay. I guess. Uh, yeah, so at Hunter Mods. Uh, there's also a podcast that I do with Brian Callen, uh, sometimes called the Brian Callen show, sometimes called mixed metal arts. Um, and you can also get my book, the straight A conspiracy on audible on Amazon, all the platforms. Thank you so much. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song called It's the Little Things by Nate Maingard. Nate listens to the podcast. He sent me some tunes, and he is from Cape Town, South Africa. If you're a musician and you want your music played at the end of this show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. And once again, if you want to send me some audio, you can do that by using the Voice Memos app on your phone and email it to info at kyle.surf. Just try and keep it under a minute. Finally, this is an ad-free podcast. I'm going to keep it that way, and it is because of people like you who donate on Patreon. So if you can donate, even just a few bucks a month click the link below this podcast where it says buy me a cup of coffee on patreon even just the equivalent of a cup of coffee helps keep this podcast going if you can't donate do not stress on it please just keep listening to the show share it with a friend give it a rating on itunes that helps me get these amazing guests and bringing these shows to you every single week so with that as always get out in the water whatever body of water is closest to you and have a great day. It's the little things that make or break All the little things that spin and shake A life worth living despite the heavy hand at stake What reason for my size Thanks for asking, but I ain't gonna say Since you're passing by Here's a word or two I'd like to send your way It's the little things that make your brain
life worth living despite the heavy hand at stake. It's the little things that make your brain. All the little things that spin and shake. A life worth living despite the heavy hand at stake. It's the little things that make your brain. All the little things that spin and shake. A life worth living despite the heavy Life worth living despite the heavy hand at stake.